Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Sport is meant to be the healthiest thing in the world and professional athletes operate at the top level of fitness. So why then do women at the top level face stress fractures at three times the rate of their male peers? And why is disordered eating so common amongst this cohort? Lauren Fleshman was a professional runner, a college phenomenon and a multiple-time national champion in the 5,000-metre race. And now, in her new book, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World, she looks back at her career and examines what needs to change so that the sport is healthy for women in body and mind. Welcome to you, Lauren. Oh, thank you. That's a great summary. I'm excited to talk about this. You wrote, running will always be home for your body and mind. Talk to me about that idea. Well, I mean, I think running is one of the most natural things in the world. And um, having kids showed me that they break into a run before they're even really able to and land on their face. It's something that we just, just wants to come out of us. So I feel that once I found running as a sport and I was introduced to so many of the beautiful things that sport has to offer and running in particular, community, an opportunity to clear my mind, to just move my body through space, to explore, all of those things, I, I fell in love with it. And so it's a way for me to come home to myself that I still use today in my 40s regularly. When you first started competing in high school, you were taught to, quote, soak in the field. Talk to me about that moment on race day and what that, that line means. Well, that purity of running I was just describing that that starts to get muted or covered up a bit by some of the expectations in formalized sport, right? So you have these competition venues and all the expectations and the spectators and the all the hoo-ha around everything. And the way that starts to feel as an athlete is it kind of adds this layer of heaviness to you um, that gets in the way between you and your primal running self. And so soaking in the field was something my older teammates taught me where you lay down on the ground, with, you know, the earth, the grass below you. And you close your eyes and you just breathe and you sink, you feel like you're sinking into the ground. I mean, you're quite literally grounding yourself. And this is a meditative practice that didn't go by that name at the time. And I, I still have trouble meditating in any other way to this day, but that felt like the most natural thing in the world. And as soon as I w was able to lay down on the ground in that way, all that extra stuff that had been accumulating around me at the race course was able to lift off of me. And I refound my center. And from that place, it was a lot easier to go out and do my best. Funny you mentioned grounding. I actually saw on last weekend's Super Bowl some of the players involved taking off their shoes and grounding their feet on the grass, which turned out to be incredibly wet, as, as we know. But it's an interesting <laughs> way to sort of centre yourself before uh, the pressure of the, the big show. The idea that sport is obviously healthy, a healthy thing for us to do, is, is fairly universally accepted. But you note that for women... There are these huge rates of stress fractures and disordered eating associated with competitive sport. What's gone wrong here in your view? Well, I think movement is undoubtedly healthy. Any doctor will tell you movement on a regular basis is healthy. Um, we've created organized sport as a way to set aside the time and create competitions and all these other incentives to do it collectively in community, right? So if the problems come in when our sports systems 
that we added women to in the women's rights movement, they weren't created with the female body in mind. They were created by men for men and boys um, and a male and specifically around boys aged 13 to 22, really. That's high school and um, and early professional in some countries, but college age in the United States very intense competitive sport years, the 13 to 22 year old male body is doing something entirely different under the skin (laughs) than the female body is. Male puberty with testosterone, a a linear model of improvement year over year, work harder, get better, all those sort of athletic mantras, you get out what you put in in sport. That's really based around the male body through puberty. The female body has a completely different thing. We start out as kids, we get better when we work harder, but then with certain changes in puberty, we invest in tissues that aren't immediately beneficial to sports performance, breast tissue, hips, like increased body fat, some of those things that they they take a little bit of time for us to adjust to them. So there's a couple years, a year, two years, um, it hasn't been studied much formally actually where women can expect a performance plateau or even a temporary dip in performance before they then rise again once they've adjusted to that body and peak in their mid to late 20s and beyond. But Girls in our sports system aren't made aware that this plateau or even temporary dip is completely normal and, in fact, essential to get through that stage healthy so that they can reach their ultimate potential and stay in sport. And so girls are leaving the sport in large numbers, feeling frustrated. Um, Coaches and parents are having them look in all the wrong places for why they're not improving, like mental, like going to sports psychologists when there's really nothing wrong between their ears. Their bodies are just changing normally. And then as a result, a lot of girls end up fighting against their bodies, depriving themselves nutritionally, developing eating disorders or low-grade Um, deficits in their eating that lead to increased risk of fracture, lowered immune systems, um, compromised mental health. And we are just starting to really study this in large enough numbers to see how bad it is. There is a big discrepancy in how our female athletes are thriving in sport compared to the male athletes, even when given equal access to play. When it is this idea of equal access to play, I just wonder how you've responded to, I suppose, feminist critics who might say that the idea is to have equal access and that the male and female bodies should be able to participate equally, although not always together, uh, on the sporting field and that any kind of acceptance of Uh, one or the other being somehow unsuited is a uniquely uh, non-feminist idea. How do you respond to those critics? Yeah, well, I think that historically difference has been the primary tool for oppression and exclusion in all kinds of marginalized groups. And certainly women have had a long history of people saying, hey, your bodies are different. Your uterus will fall out if you run or you will be infertile if you run. There's all these this fake science connected to our differences used as justifications for our exclusion. So difference hasn't been a safe place for us to talk about. Um, but it's, it is it is a matter of equity that you have to talk about differences. If you have people going through a completely different body experience and you can't even talk about it or see it or accommodate it, then you end up with harm being caused. You're trying to squeeze female bodies into a system not designed for them. And it's not saying that we can't participate in sport or we can't even thrive. It's just saying, hey, 
we're developing breasts. We have a menstrual cycle. These are things that coaches can't even talk about. Most coaches are men and they can't even say the word period without euphemisms. So we have to be able to speak honestly and candidly about the things happening in the embodied female athlete experience for them to be able to thrive. And that's all it is. Let's talk further about the harm, the pressure in athletics that leads to disordered eating. You describe how so many of the young girls around you developed unhealthy relationships to food. Was some of that an attempt to stave off puberty, as you referred to earlier? Absolutely. Um, puberty is framed as a career ender for a lot of developing female athletes. And it's it's very, it's like, I, I use this analogy where if you took 13-year-old boys who enjoyed singing and you did a test on all of them to decide who had the potential to be a singer as a grown-up, that would be the worst possible age to take a group of boys and test their vocal range, right? And their voices are cracking and changing. Everybody knows this. And that's essentially what we're doing in our sports systems with developing female bodies is we're looking at puberty and the, the changing female body to something softer as uh, like something we need to draw conclusions about now, that it, that it means that they can't continue to improve and that they won't ever have a shot at being exceptional. And that's just way too premature to be creating these kinds of messages. And when we do create those messages, then there is something girls can do. They can stop eating. <laughs> they can try to make the control the development of their body. And, um, and that it always leads to poor health outcomes in the end. On RN Drive, you're hearing from Lauren Fleshman. We're talking about her new book, Good for a Girl. And you write about being at an event with the best of young runners at that time that we had a hotel full of stars and we were greeted with pomp and circumstance that we, what we really needed was an intervention. What did you mean by an intervention? What needed to change? Well, there were so many girls at this national championship meet who were trying to either stop puberty from happening happening, so they could stay in their young girl body forever or reverse time and starve off the parts of them that had changed into a, a woman body. And so, and no one was talking about it. There'd be girls with a few lettuce leaves on their plate. And instead of saying anything about the harm that they could be causing their, themselves, um, we're showing big screen videos of them winning their regional race that qualified them for this race. We're celebrating um, short-term performance advantages. And that was really tough because there's like a social contagion element to all of this as well, where all the healthier girls in the room are watching who is succeeding now because there is a there can be a short term benefit to inadequate nutrition, to rapid weight loss in certain sports, and eventually it, it will catch up to you. Um, but, you know, you don't get to see what happens to that person six months, a year from now. What you see is them standing on top of the podium now. You were competing at the event where Kim Mortensen broke the national record for the, um, I think it was the 3,200 metre race uh, by yes. a remarkable 12 seconds. Yes. What did you find as you tried to follow coverage of Kim's career, both before and after? Uh, well, growing up in the same state as Kim, I saw her in the newspaper all the time. She was on a record-breaking streak and just w winning everything. She went to the Foot Locker Nationals. I mean, she was everywhere. And then I followed the news as she got a scholarship to UCLA. She was the most highly sought-after athlete in the nation. Um, and then it wasn't until a year later that I saw 
an article in the LA Times about her um, medically retiring early, or a couple years later, actually, retiring early due to eating disorder um, complications to her health, you know, broken bones and and things like that. So that was a real eye-opening thing to see that she kind of disappeared off the map for a few years after all that high school success. And then there was this announcement and it was like, what happened there? It was very jarring to see how 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 dramatically different someone's life could take a turn who had been on top of the world. You yourself had a highly successful career with your own share of remarkable highs and the occasional low, but you write about a time when you traded your obsession with being the best for being good, just good. What what did you mean by that? By that, and what changed at that point to give you that perspective? I think that I had been through my own stage of disordered eating. I had broken bones. I had pay. I had missed opportunities in pursuit of being the this idea of excellent, of looking like the the image of excellence, of fighting for every percent of body fat, all of those things, just trying to be perfect. There was a huge cost. I couldn't even be good because most of the time I was hurt in this uh, effort to be perfect. And so I just decided that, you know, what is the saying? I forget who, who what famous quote, but don't let perfect be the enemy of of done <laughs> or of good. Um, and that was the trade-off. I realized that there would be no, there would be no um, replacement for consistency and that being a, like a, a percentage or two of body fat more than what someone else told me was ideal or a few pounds heavier than that, that would create the kind of ease moving through the world. Like a low, it would lower my stress levels enough where I could actually train consistently every day, show up and race at all the big races and not be sidelined and then build confidence over time. And those things would be more important than any number on a scale. Lauren, you're a coach these days. And I I wonder what goes through your mind as you prepare your athletes. How do you pick through the wisdom that you were told that worked and throw away the chaff that didn't work for you? Well, the main things that I've done um, right away, I try to get them to stop obsessing over weight, body fat, things like that, to to create more acceptability for a range of what their body will look like. As a female athlete in particular, our body weight and the way it looks changes on a monthly basis. That is part of what's normal for us. So dialing in any one specific weight or getting attached to any specific look is a folly. You're you just you're going to drive yourself crazy for no reason. So it's better to just have like a general range that you fall in and then let it go. So I teach them to do that and to focus more on their confidence, their internal confidence that comes from inside instead of these external measures. And then the other thing that's hugely important that is trained out of female athletes before they even get to me is listening to their own voice of what they know is the right thing to do. Like we're taught that being coachable as an athlete, especially as a female athlete, means never questioning anything the coach says, being compliant, you know, just showing up and checking all the boxes. But to be an elite athlete, to truly reach your best, you have to be able to listen to yourself. You have to know that you know yourself best. Um, And so I have to help them restore that trust in themselves because when they come to me, they think that I know best what their body is. And I know a lot of things they don't know, but I don't know their body better than they do. And so I have to spend at least the first year or two reacquainting themselves with their inner voice, with their knowing, you know, with whatever their superpowers are, instead of them looking outside to see 
who they should try to be like. I'm like, no, you are you. What are you good at? Let's do, let's hone those skills. Let's be more you instead of more like them. It's a a fascinating uh, book and a fascinating discussion, especially as uh, we enter the age of uh, increasing levels of professional participation for women in sport. Lauren, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you for having me. Lauren Fleshman's been my guest and her book, Good for a Girl, is out now through Hachette. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.